is not a bad time to be in broadcasting. We're fresh off the Southern Baptist Convention out in Dallas, Texas. I'm back from there. We'll talk about it. And also on the South Carolina primaries, we'll do that and more on today's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. I have now said it many times that I'm going to get plenty of traction out of this joke before I stop using it, but there is no party like a Baptist party because a Baptist party doesn't stop if you watch my Facebook live feed live from Dallas. You would have heard that joke in many, many other times. You've heard it on this air. Uh, and I'm just uh, actually recording, if I'm honest, with my mobile studio in Dallas, Texas right now. Uh, after this, most of the Southern Baptist Convention has concluded, J.D. Greer has been elected the president of the convention. Certainly want to talk about that and some of my other takeaways from this gathering of the United States' largest denomination. And certainly South Carolina primary results are in. Got some runoffs coming up. We'll do all that and more right after this. My name is Corey Truax, securing the blessings of liberty since 1986. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings at Greenville High School in downtown Greenville. We'd love to have you there. It's actually been great meeting a couple new listeners. Uh, several, actually, have been coming to visit Beachwood and some other new folks. We'd love to have you any given Sunday morning, 1030 Greenville High School for Beachwood Church. So... The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest denomination, even though we technically don't call ourselves a denomination. We are a, a collection of churches, a convention of churches, all independent and autonomous, but working together cooperatively for the cause of having the, the message of Jesus, the gospel, go out to as many places as possible. And every year we get together, uh, and uh, last year was Phoenix, this year it's Dallas, next year Birmingham, Alabama, I think the year after that is Nashville, I think it is, in any event... Uh, we get together and discuss things. Certainly choose leaders, but one of the one of the I, I, things I look forward to the most, and I think it's significant, are the motions that are passed. These these things where at least a majority of Southern Baptists come together and say, "Here's what we believe about a given thing," and so I want to get to those. Uh, but I should start with the top line headline. So most of the Baptist press, the Christian press, Charisma News to Baptist Baptist News. We're really covering J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is the second youngest person of all time to be, which is only like a hundred twenty some odd year, I think, history in the Southern Baptist Convention. A second youngest to ever be elected president of that convention, uh, and he's a young forty-five years old, pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it can't be denied that his model, that his results for seeing the gospel grow, so that's conversions happen, professions of faith, and then having those systems and structures of discipleship grow to the extent that they go out and plant more churches, not just growing the one church to be this big J.D. Greer party where everyone just loves his his personality, but really tr trying to get folks to, all right, so, uh, since we've discipled you up, let's get you to go. Let's get you to start another church and an, another church somewhere else that doesn't have uh, a really strong Bible teaching place. That's been his model. It's been very successful. And certainly that's the argument he made to the Southern Baptist Convention. He brings that ingenuity, that energy that comes with relative youth. And I'm excited about him. Uh, I really think Southern Baptists did not have a bad choice. There were two folks running to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Ken Hemphill, in his, I hate to call it a campaign, but in his in his eligibility to be president, just behaved himself with such honor. I mean, if I can have that kind of grace at his age, I would love to get to that kind of grace before I get to his age. Just what an honorable guy. 
what a guy it was fun to watch make his argument, his genuine love for the convention, the work of the gospel going out, the work of evangelism. Uh, and he was the first one I, first tweet I saw out there to congratulate J.D. Greer after his election. Uh, so that's, that's the top line story is that he's young. Another under the, I hate to call it uh, under the radar, but it's subtext. I believe J.D. Greer is a, as I am, a five-point Calvinist, a Reformed theologian. And so that's new to the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think to the more traditionalist, uh, older generation, that's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable thing for the Southern Baptist Convention to be run, not really run by, the president doesn't have really any kind of this autonomous power. There's a, a lot of checks and balances in the SBC. Uh, but to be represented nationally as a president by a Calvinist. I think this is healthy uh, because for a while there, uh, for Calvinist Arvidians, there's like the other one had a disease. Uh, so th- I think it would be healthy for uh, the two sides on this one thing, soteriology, this idea of how we come to faith, how we are saved. And even if you want to drill down more, this is all we're arguing about. Did Jesus die for the sins? Uh, or did, did Jesus? does Jesus' death make... Salvate, did it make salvation happen for the redeemed people, or did his death make it possible? Did it, did it do it, or did it make it possible? We're arguing about that piece of soteriology, how salvation happens. And there have been folks over decades willing to hate each other over this concept. I am unwilling to hate or yell at or be mean to the folks who think that Jesus dying on the cross made salvation possible. I don't think that. I think it was effectual for the salvation of those that that are God's people, that are his called out, that are his sheep of his pasture. That's what I think, and that's what J.D. Greer has preached, and Ken Hempel's a little different on that, but that's okay. So I think it will be healthy that we can have that discussion inside the the largest denomination, but maybe more important to take out of that convention. This is the largest convention of Christians, largest denomination of, of Christianity in the United States, but guys, it's shrinking. It's in trouble. It's not doing great. And so there has to be a re-emphasis, and I think either one of these presidents, and certainly I took out of the convention, a re-emphasis on evangelism in our workplaces, in our schools, being involved in neighborhood associations, being involved in little league teams and youth sports and getting those, uh, those relationships out in the culture, out in the world, and then having those become evangelistic, inviting those to church, actually sharing the gospel, having them over for dinner, you going to to dinner and actually sharing what you believe. You know, I had a, a sweet lady in, in my life, so a little bit older, recently say, you know, Corey, I know that we are the majority in America. And she was talking about Christians and I had to, I, I didn't stop her, but I really wanted to stop her and go, well, no, no, we're not. And I need you to know that about us, about Christianity. We're not the majority in the United States. We actually are quite the minority Folks who actually believe the Bible is inerrant, that go to church regularly, that, that believe Jesus physically rose from the dead, is coming again, that's a small subset of the United States of America that actually adhere to the core doctrines of the faith. And so there's some kind of American Christianity. It's like a civil religion that Ben Franklin talked about. It's not the biblical version, but it's the American version. We've attached some kind of version of Christianity that has a flag on it and has an eagle uh, and there's there's a bunch of rah rah to it uh, that you know America's God's special thing. We're going to get into that here in a second, uh, but not the real one. And so we got to realize uh, that that historically that's where we are as as a faith. We are a minority group. We're a small piece, 
And so that's our place. There's a lot of folks that think they know what we believe. They're wrong. They don't actually know what the gospel is. They don't actually know what Christianity is. And that's an emphasis we need to take out of this convention is it's time for action on that. All kinds of mobilization and equipping needs to take place to get our churches mobilized into neighborhoods, into schools, into churches, into businesses to share the gospel, to share the story of Jesus. Now that's the big thing out of the convention. I have another thought from it. I've now been to two conventions, annual conventions, and both very near the top, not the top. I mean, it starts with Christian music, usually. It starts with some, some singing. But very near the beginning, before there's ever a sermon, before there's really business taken care of, there was a... Before you really get into anything that's gospel-related, really Southern Baptist Christian mission, before we do any of that, there was a Pledge of Allegiance. And there was God Bless America singing that in the national anthem. And a good 20 minutes honoring veterans. And every one of those things is good. Singing the Pledge of Allegiance is good. Singing the national anthem is good. Singing God Bless America is good. Because actually I've always thought God Bless America should be the national anthem. That's a way better song than the national anthem. The Star Spangled Banner, not great. Not a great song. Hard to sing. God Bless America, awesome song. It should be your national anthem. And obviously, spending 20 minutes on veterans, let's do that. I, I don't like the message it sends about what the men and women in that room are saying about our identity. I certainly think it would be a healthier a healthier thing for all of us knowing that I, I'll say it this way. Nothing in that display, the Pledge of Allegiance, the God Bless America, the National Anthem, none of that made me want to sing this old classic hymn from Beulah Land. None of that made me go... I'm kind of homesick for a country that I've never been before. What I picked up from that display was, I'm not homesick at all. I love this place. Give me some more America. And it would be something to the world to actually have this this symbol that says, hey, we're not going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. That we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And go back and actually say the Apostles' Creed. You know, we're not going to sing God Bless America. It's a fine song. But everyone in this room, we're not first Americans. We're actually first Christians because in this room are actually Koreans and Mexicans. And there's there's actually, I think there was Canadians I met there. There were some Germans that were at the Southern Baptist Convention because it's a theological thing, not a a national thing. To actually just go, you know, we're going to say the, uh, the Apostles' Creed and we're going to sing the doxology together because that's universal. Spending, like, it was a good half hour, maybe a little bit more than that. Before we ever got to anything gospel, we went, we sure do love America. America's great. And it is. I'm so grateful to live here and it's not other places. I didn't actually, technically was not born here, but I'm so glad to basically have been born here. Born into into the American culture. I am spoiled. I'm a spoiled brat to have been born into this. But when we come together as Christians, you know what's better than being an American? A citizen of the kingdom of God. It's just way better. Like the king, America's going to fade. It's going to go away. In 500 years, no one's going to remember it ever happened. But the kingdom of God will go on forever. And so I would love to see us eventually replace that. Replace the America party that we're doing. We really should do it soon and make a statement to the watching world. Because there's media there. Like I actually saw HBO's. I, I'm a fan of hers. She's on Vice News. She was there doing media. She's there looking at the the, the changing face of evangelicalism. It would be a great thing to go out there and say, hey, we're not America's first. We are Christians first. 
And that led me to one, I guess, probably final thought in this segment. Might get into the Mike Pence thing because he was invited to speak. And that, that goes to this core of what are we living for? What is the goal of the Christian life? Is the goal of the Christian life primarily to make America Christian again? Is the goal of the Christian life to, uh, to make sure that Christian standards are upheld in media, TV, movies, radio? Is it to get back to the 1950s? Because that was the ideal time. That's when everything was really good. Or is it the Christian mission? Is it the point that we live to get the gospel to everybody? And despite the consequences it would have on whatever your country is. I think it's the latter. It's the second thing that we're supposed to be doing. Even at the expense of your own country, you go to get the gospel because that's who we are first. We are Christians first and then Americans somewhere way on down the line. I have some other thoughts I want to get to from the convention, certainly South Carolina primary results. We have a lot more we have to do, so stick with us for the remainder of this edition of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Thanks for sticking with us for segment number two. Connect to the show anytime you want on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Just look for me, Corey Act. You'll find me there. We spent that first segment going back through a lot of the events of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer's election, and just generally how to think of ourselves uh, as Christians first, members of the kingdom of God first, before we are members of the United States of America. And that came to that core question. What is it that we're actually living for? Because what I'm picking up from some of my, uh, my fellow Southern Baptists is it's, it's not at the expense of the kingdom of God. It's not thinking about uh, Christian things uh, in a way that they're not important. It's just adding things to them, adding the well-being of the United States of America, seeing that it goes forth is a very important thing to them. And I think they're setting themselves up for some kind of real big disappointment in that this is just the normal ebb and flow of history where empires fall. You, you, th- you think the Romans 20 years before their fall thought it would ever fall, that it would ever change? Do you think the Greeks thought 20 years before their fall that it would ever change? And so this is all about hope. This is all about w- w- in, where, in, where we actually put our hope, that we are not a people uh, that have our, our eyes set on things of earth, but our eyes set above so that we hold loosely to the things of this world, hold tightly to Jesus, because these are the only things that will not fail us. We won't be disappointed if our hope, if we get up every day living for the eternal, and ultimately, as much as we love the country, it is temporal. It's going to go away. It's been a blip on the worldwide radar. And as I've had those discussions, uh, primarily through Twitter, which is never productive, this is where the disconnect is. The disconnect is, if you're not rah-rah America, there's something wrong with your Christianity, and equally, I think folks on my side have this idea of if you are really, really love the country, then you've automatically set up America as an idol. Uh, both of us should not have these caricatures of one another, but certainly uh, not thinking. I'll give you an example. I had a person on Twitter say, well, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think you can love God and country. And the point there being, well, yeah, she comes to this, this Twitter uh, person who tweeted at me. Well, yeah, you probably are old-fashioned. And God helped me not be new-fashioned. Help us all be biblically fashioned. That there's there's no value in, in just the old traditions because they're old in their traditions. And there's no value in the new things and the cutting-edge things just because they're new and cutting-edge. The value for all of us from a Christian perspective is just getting back to the Bible. What does it say? What are the values that it gives us? And when I look at Scripture, I do know this. I am, I'm going for a city not made with hands. I'm not for this one. I'm grateful for this one, but I wasn't made for this world. 
And as I, as I said in that first segment, what my, the impression I picked up from a lot of my brothers and sisters is if we sang uh, that old Beulah Land song, I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before, I would need to say back to them, no, you're not. You're not all that homesick. You really, really like it here. You, you really want to see it prosper. And, and so they're going towards Paul in this idea of there's this, this crown. Uh, I can't remember the actual, there's five crowns that Paul talks about. But one of them is for those that love his appearing, that love the idea of Jesus coming again. And that brings the, the, the end of these, uh, these worldly, these temporal empires and governments and kings and queens. Let us be people that are looking, looking above. That's what we should live for. So that's, uh, I have one more thought on the Southern Baptist Convention uh, as it's coming to its close. Uh, Vice, uh, Vice President Mike Pence did come speak today. Uh, that motion to keep him from doing so failed. And ultimately, I, I count Mike Pence a brother. I mean, he gave, uh, I sat in on that speech, and he gave a, a really, I thought, sincere accounting of his own conversion, uh, for which I'm grateful. Obviously grateful for, for all testimonies all the time. Those are my favorite stories, right? The, the stories of conversion are the best stories we can ever hear. But... But then what, what I feared took place. What started as a, uh, this, uh, as, what started as this idea of, I, I'm here to thank you for being uh, part of the solution in America, being part of the fabric of what built the country, became, hey, and here's all the, the great stuff Trump has done. Uh, here's the tax cuts, and here's what's happening in North Korea. And it ended up being a campaign speech, and that's what I feared. Because there's a whole watching world, not, and I mean that a watching world, not just a watching Americans, but there's a watching world. And you have to start to question, are we even, are we for the globe? Are we, are we for Christians everywhere? Are we a global thing or are we an American thing? And when you invite a politician who then just comes in and gives their resume and gives their results, I think it's totally fair for someone outside the faith to just go, hey, they're really Republican-y. Before they are, before they are gospel people, before they're Jesus people, one of their big uh, points is to support those Republicans. That is to say nothing of those results. Those results are great. I, I love my tax cut. I am so grateful that we are talking with North Korea. I mean, consider this. Consider this gospel implication of the talks with North Korea. That place has been living under the thumb of those dictators for generations with really no hope of even hearing the gospel. One of the consequences of this secular action could possibly be the opening of the gospel in North Korea. That's insanely awesome. That's incredible. I'm so grateful for it. But that's not what Mike Pence talked about. He talked about it from a very secular perspective. And so it was a bad idea. It's one that we shouldn't repeat. Uh, there, there does need to be this distinction. And, and for whatever reason, I think the generation behind me has trouble having that distinction that America isn't the kingdom of God. They are two separate entities. And the kingdom of God is going to be just fine no matter what happens to America. America can be, can be prospering economically and doing well, uh, and, the, and the kingdom of God is, is not affected by that. And America can be doing very poorly, and the kingdom of God is not going to be affected by that either. I think one of the distinctions that has to get made as well, and again, I, I think it's... I'm not trying to beat up on any given, quote, generation of people because the good things and the bad things, the good thinking and the bad thinking are cross-generational. There are a bunch of people my age and younger than me that have got some things muddied in the relationship between a country and kingdom. I, I think there's some folks my age and the generation, I, should, I said behind me a minute ago, I meant the generation ahead of me. So the, the old, I think some older folks have trouble have dis, having that distinction that, 
the United States and the kingdom of God aren't the same thing. I think the generation coming behind me might like hate America. Like there's a possibility there. Uh, it, it's there is a this concept that God created nations. He did intend for us to have countries. That was his own design. And so, it, and in that, there's got to be a, a tinge of nationalism, a tinge of patriotism in all of us. I think it's a, a natural reaction, and it's healthy for society's good for human flourishing, but keeping priorities straight. And, and even in, I'm not saying I've got it perfect. My point here is everybody's got something a little wrong. I'm just trying to correct the ones that I see wrong when they pop up. And another one I'm seeing is this. I think there's a, a problem with people not understanding there's a difference between pro-Christian and actual Christian. So, for example, with this administration, the the policies have been pro-Christian. I, I would very happily uh, sub- submit that to you and lay it out there that these judges and reversing Mexico City policy, uh, moving the, uh, the embassy to Jerusalem, these are pro-Christian and pro-conservative. There's a difference between being pro like for something and actually being that something. I, I, I said this to my dad on this trip, um, and shout, shout out to him real quick. I mean, I'm a grown man, and that guy still is still trying to be very, very generous to me like I'm 12. Uh, so very, very grateful uh, for, for an awesome father and uh, modeling generosity his entire life, but uh, certainly on this Dallas trip with me and my nephew as well. Uh, but in, in any event, I said, I said to him on this trip, that this could have gone the other direction just as easily. I think I might have said this on the show before, uh, that it was, all that happened was the left was mean to him. So Donald Trump doesn't actually believe any of these things. He doesn't believe the things he's doing, especially on social policy. His whole life he's not believed these things. But he got to be president, and he looked outside the windows and looked on TV, and it was the left being mean to him. And so for Donald Trump, it's not about actual beliefs. It's not about principles. It's always about team and winning and who's on my side and who's on their side. That's his his rudder, where my rudder is the Holy Spirit, the Bible. It, it, it changes the ship. That's what turns me. That's how I filter information. Donald Trump's filter is, is it good for me? Is it bad for me? Are they, are they on my team or are they not on my team? And so when the left is being mean, Donald Trump's reaction was, they're being very mean to me. I will find Mike Pence. He's tremendous. He will give me all the hugs. And I would do what Mike Pence and all the other people that are being nice to me say. And so the left drove him into conservative policy. And it's awesome. Like, I, there is an argument that the policy of the first 500 days is the most conservative policy of the first 500 days. But don't get that twisted. That doesn't make Donald Trump a conservative. It makes the policy conservative. And so the same thing with this, with this conflation of kingdom and country. There is a conflation of pro-Christian versus actual Christian. Yeah, the policy's pro-Christian. They're, they like us. The folks in the administration like us. But even just in this administration, the behavior has been bad. And we don't want to give a confusion to the watching world that, oh, yeah, uh, that guy who talks about uh, Mika Brzezinski's bleeding face and how they come begging and t- t- talks about people really disparagingly going all the way to Lying Ted or Little Marco, Crazy Bernie, Crooked Hillary, going down the line, people you like or don't like. Everybody's got a, got an epithet and he continues to use it. Yeah, well, those, that's not a Christian thing. That's not how Christians behave. Uh, but the policy is pro-Christian. And just all the, here's all that takes. Intellectual maturity. It takes maturity to go, oh, that person does some good things and some bad things. I don't defend all of the things because there are some good. This is where we all need to become umpires. We call balls and strikes. And 
when there's good, we go, that's great. I like that. Good. And when there's bad, we don't go, well, we can't talk about the bad because, you know, we got some good. No, we just call it bad. We just use our biblical filter to call that which is good, good, and that which is evil, evil. That's how to go about that. Um, so pro-Christian and actual Christian aren't the same thing. You know, this is something that I think we should pick up from... Rush Limbaugh is a good example of this in not all things that are anti-leftist are conservative. That's another way that folks are getting Donald Trump wrong. He's fighting the left. That's true. And he fought mostly left-wing people in the campaign because they were the ones being the most mean to him. And so, no, he doesn't believe all those things, but he'll fight the people being mean to him. You know, I grew up listening to a lot of Rush Limbaugh, and he used to have this... If I get the, I haven't listened to Rush Limbaugh in ten years, but there he used to have this thing called the uh, the it, the Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies. Like it was one of his funny things. Like he would come to the microphone and have my brain tied behind my back, and the president of the Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies. He changed that to the Institute for something like Advanced Anti Leftist Studies or Anti Left Studies, and that was an important distinction. That doesn't those w- words actually mean things. Words have definitions. And it stopped being about what is conservative and what fights the people we don't like. It doesn't actually have to be the core of what we believe, what we fight them with, but who fights those people? We don't like those people. We want to fight those people. And that's what, that's one of the reasons that the Trump phenomenon is confusing to people is because he seems to be fighting the right people. And so we, you, you want to call him on, on your side because he happens to be fighting the right folks. Somewhat related, and maybe two more thoughts on the... Uh, on the Southern Baptist Convention, and then I do want to get to the South Carolina primaries. Uh, One, there was also another failed attempt to defund the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Russell Moore runs that. He's got a hard job. You know, he's, he's the one tasked by Southern Baptists to do politics, to actually go out into the culture, and whether that be a cultural issue, something like pornography or how we think about refugees, or political policy and actually getting into dealing with politicians and interviewing them on stages and giving out report cards on who voted what way. Someone's going to get mad at you. That's just how that works. If you're getting into politics, it's going to be polarizing. And so it's there's a, a small, and I do say small, because when you actually get to the voting in the Southern Baptist Convention, I was just there, and someone comes to the microphone and says, we, we want to vote to defund the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission because Dr. Moore is promoting a social gospel or social justice. One of the two, a lot of times both. That's just false. That's a lie about him. And, and where it's not a lie, it's a, it's a gross misunderstanding. Someone who's not done the work. They've not done the careful study. And they read a blog somewhere. So this is another big problem we have. We just, oh, that blog said it. I'm in. Okay. Well, the blog said the thing. Or for that matter, don't ever do this with me. Well, the talk radio host said that thing, so it's got to be true. Why don't we all be independent thinkers? Why don't we all actually go out and do the work? Is that hard? Sure. You're going to have to stop watching Netflix for 10 minutes and do the work to find out what is true and what's not. But someone read a blog, and so Dr. Moore is part of the social gospel and social justice. Uh, so we want to defund the RLC. There were those that attacked it. And it when you actually take the vote to who supports the RLC vast majority of Southern Baptists did, and I am grateful for that. Um, so just so you know, the news, that did take place. There was a challenge to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and Dr. Moore, uh, but very easily uh, overcame that. And I, I just do want to, I do want to call out the criticism of Dr. Moore as social gospel, social justice as false, outright false. 
So there was that one. Oh, yeah, there's one more. I believe she's still on these airwaves. Maybe she's not. Maybe she's on uh, another station in this market. Uh, but I do want to call, also call out Janet Mefford. You know, here recently, I want to call her out because she was at the Southern Baptist Convention. She was there, I guess, with a media pass and tweeting snide, unhelpful things, as she does. Here recently, I said, on the air, I think Andy Stanley's gone too far. He's a teacher we should avoid now. Uh, and he's even doubled down on that, man. He's Even a, a sermon more recently, he's talking about how we need to stop saying the Bible says. Like he, This is a, a very specific position of his. He, he's not sorry for it. And so I'm, I'm glad to have said we need to avoid Andy Stanley. He's got a, a weird, wonky, wrong theology that he's teaching. I think Janet Medford is somebody... Let me take out the I think, because I'm right on this. Janet Mevert is someone we need to start avoiding. She finds heresy where there is none. And she finds conflict where there does not need to be any. And this is a specifically anti-biblical way to live. She is looking for fights. She's looking for ways to, to stir up conflict amongst believers, where there might actually be differences of belief and different of style, but everyone is inside orthodoxy, but she's just looking for fights to start. And then she also has her priorities wrong. She's definitely one that thinks America's just special, man. God put America on this earth uh, to, to be the kingdom of God. And if you don't get a tear in your eye at every, every saying of the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, you obviously don't love Jesus enough because loving Jesus means loving America. She's got it all jacked up. Just monitor her Twitter, her Twitter feed from the Southern Baptist Convention and you'll go, yep, Corey's right about that. So Jenna Mefford is someone I think just needs to be avoided. There is, there's a certain part of her world that's someone in the Alex Jones conspiracy world where there is a, a desire for Gnosticism, this, this philosophy that was secret knowledge. And that's a, a temptation in all of our hearts. A temptation in all of our hearts is to believe that we know something that not everybody else knows. We know something that the, the general population wasn't quite shrewd enough to see. And that's the Janet Mefford draw. That's why she has an audience of any sort. Because it makes a listener feel like, I know something that not everybody knows. Like, even like the smartest people out there, they've been undertaken, they've been or overtaken by some philosophy, some worldly philosophy, but I know the truth. I know what's real. I know what's going on. And a lot of it's not true. It's taken out of context. It's just an attack. It's needlessly combative. That's who she is. I mean, just the tweet that set this off in me is during the, as we talked about, I wish we didn't do it, there's a big America party at the SBC where we sing the National Anthem, Pledge of Allegiance, all that. And she tweets something about how, I'm so just, my big takeaway from the Southern Baptist Convention is all these skinny jeans, young young millennials uh, that not just don't say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing the National Anthem, but stand there snidely while they, while they don't. Because it, it offends Janet Mefford. It's, it's an offense to some people. You don't, you don't, they would say, honor or respect my flag. You don't feel the same way about my country that I do, and so therefore that offends me. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't really sing the National Anthem, and I, I really don't say the Pledge of Allegiance as a matter of conscious, conscience, which a lot of folks just stood there quietly. I mean, you are the one, Janet Mefford, who you interpreted it as snide. Where, what's going, here, let me tell you what's going through my head. I'm barely a millennial, but a millennial. But what's going through my head is, can we get started? 
what are we doing? What are we doing spending these 30, 40 minutes on this when we could actually be accomplishing tasks? It, it wasn't uh, the self-satisfaction of, you know, the, I am so much more deeply spiritual than, than these other people. Oh, these America worshipers, I can't believe how wrong they are. That's not the heart. The heart is, um, can we do something Jesus-related? That'd be awesome. Because we, you know, we came here to do the Jesus-related thing. And so Janet Mefford, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many of you listen to her. She's a problem. I mean, and really stylistically, just she's also just mean. You know, I, I get on Twitter and get a little back and forth to some of her people. And that's what they like to say to me is, well, you're just a snowflake. You're easily, you're just offended. I'm impossible to offend. You can't offend me. Like it's almost, It probably is impossible to offend me. But those are the folks that I actually find to be the most snowflake. The most snowflake are those, you didn't stand for my song and my flag and you said something bad about my president. And then they get all riled up and mad about it. I think we got to finish this because i got to get on to the South Carolina primaries. We'll take one more break. We'll come back and talk South Carolina primary results on the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back for the final segment of this edition of the Corey Truax Show. I really have a ton of more I want to do with the Trump-Kim summit. I uh, just had some general thoughts about the news coverage there and some things I saw online as people discussed it. But we, And I have more I could get to on the Southern Baptist Convention. If you missed any part of it, you can go get the show on demand on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud.com, slash Corey Truax. You can get the show at CoreyTruax.com as well. If you want to listen back to any of that, highly appreciate it if you would share the show. Uh, but we got to move. Uh, so South Carolina primaries, we're going to have a runoff for a lot of races coming up uh, in just a now, I guess 10, 10-ish days, it'll be on the 20th, yeah, it's 10 days, a 26th of this month. Uh, so I just want to go through some of those results and some takeaways from them and just give you some thoughts on how I'm going to vote in those runoffs. So starting with governor, always top of the line stuff. Very excited to see John Warren, that he was able to become that number two. I always assumed Henry McMaster, the governor of this sovereign state of South Carolina, who understands the, the sweet nectar of Southern politics is the almighty dollar, that I always assumed he would be number one. That's how South Carolina works. We are a name recognition primary. I know his name, her name. I shall therefore vote for that person. That's how that's how we tend to work. And so I do suspect, I always knew he was going to be in the runoff. It was just a question of who was going to be that number two. I was excited to see it wasn't Catherine Templeton. I, I think she's kind of a fake. I think she's a fraud. Uh, and I had the j- joke that I felt like that was going to be a uh, an ad somewhere, for maybe on eBay. Facebook marketplace that someone was selling an unused or slightly used buzzsaw now that she's out of the picture. Uh, But John Warren is certainly who I'm going to vote for in that primary runoff. He's young. I think by the time of the election, he's like 39 years old when we get to November. Uh, But I like his running mate. I think that's a good, healthy balance to have uh, older generation and young generation, that, that wisdom and experience that can be a uh, something to bridle back the energy, but the, you also bring the innovation, that, that new look to state government, what state the state should do versus counties and cities. And again, this is one of the reasons I've liked John Warren the most is the couple conversations I've had with him in person. One on Christian Talk 660, filling in for Dr. Beam, I interviewed him in person. There is something about his way of thinking that is different than most people. He is not a uh, go around the edges. Well, what can we change about our existing systems? He is asking the question fundamentally, why does that system exist? Why should we, if we would start that system today, if we would have started that process today, if we would have started that organization today, how would we have started it? Not 
how do we change it a little to make it a little bit more efficient? I love his creativity, his innovation. I think it's going to be hard because, again, this state is all about your name recognition. Uh, and when 20% of people, 18% of people are voting, that's going to be rough. So uh, I am going to vote for John Warren. I would highly encourage you to do the same uh, instead of our, our governor uh, of this, this great state, so Henry McMaster. Uh, down to the oh, Secretary of State, just really quickly. That's another example. Mark Hammond has not done a bad job. I, I said that when I endorsed Josh Putnam on these airwaves. Mark Hammond's been fine. It's just one of those things where, do we believe in term limits or not? People say they want them all the time. We definitely want term limits. Well, Mark Hammond's going to have his entire adult life in Columbia in that position. Uh, and, well, I, that's a race well run by Josh Putnam. Uh, congratulations to running a, a race quite well. I'm sure it won't be the last we see of him. Over to the 4th Congressional. I just don't like how that one turned out. Of course, I wanted to see Josh Kimbrell do, uh, get into that runoff. Uh, again, this is another one where I saw Lee Bright. I just assumed Lee Bright's going to be in the, in the runoff. He has a Ron Paul-type following. It's very loyal. It's very energetic. And in Republican primaries, that's all that matters. Because, again, no one shows up. Between Republican and Democrat primaries, 18% of South Carolinians who were eligible showed up. And that's huge. Like, I said that to Dad, my, my, my dad on this, this trip to, uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention. Hey, 18% of South Carolina showed up to vote. And we were both like, wow, that's incredible. That's more than we expected. And then it kind of sinks in, man, that's still less than one out of five. And we're impressed with that. And so when you have depressed turnout numbers, these folks with very energetic, I don't want to call this one cult-like, I don't think that's fair, but a very loyal following, they're, they're going to show up and make a difference. So I always thought Lee Bright would be in the runoff whether I liked it or not, and I didn't like it. What I was hoping is that Stephen Brown, Josh Kimbrell, or Dan Hamilton would have been in the runoff, because I don't think William Timmons is much of a conservative. I think William Timmons is a... He's a product of his name. He's a product of his family. Uh, I get a little annoyed when he talks about himself as self-built. No, no. You started with a bunch of money in your pocket, brother. Now, you've done a good job with it, but come on. Let's let's stop pretending that you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. And so, uh, I don't think he's ideologically a conservative. And this is my struggle. I don't I don't have to vote in that race, so I don't have to struggle with it. But Because uh, I'm in the 3rd Congressional District with Trump fan Jeff Duncan. The... The struggle there is Lee Bright, I think, if I got into a room with Lee Bright and we started going through all the issues, he and I would agree, I think on everything, I think so, but I think I would leave the room not liking him and he would leave the room thinking I was a milk toast uh, kind of guy because I don't like his style, he is too combative for me. You know, I, I get that comment from people where, you know, he fights, he's a fighter, he goes, he, he's, such a, he's such a warrior for conservatism. Yeah, I think he's more of, again, anti-leftist, as we talked about last segment. And I just, there's a, a question of effectiveness, where how effective can you be when you just hate everybody, when you're just mean to everybody, when you're a, when you are cantankerous for the sake of cantankerousness? That's my impression of Lee Bright. But he has all of the, I think he has all the ideology, right? I, mean, I, I, can't, I can't find the place where he doesn't. And William Timmons, I don't think he actually believes conservative things. I think he is self-motivated. And so in a district made up of Greenville and Spartanburg, you're going to need a really conservative voting record to keep that seat. And so I suspect he'll have a very conservative voting record to keep that seat because he doesn't want to lose it. I don't know what I would do. I could see... I definitely couldn't vote for Timmons. I, I'm somebody who actually 
does believe you're allowed to not vote. If you feel like you don't have a, a good choice, then don't vote. That's fine. You don't have to vote in that race. I probably would end up not voting in that race. There is something that could make maybe convince me to vote for Lee Bright with the, the idea of, well, someone's got to be in that seat for two years. And so I want to vote for Lee Bright, and hopefully someone will primary him and get rid of him later. But definitely I, I could not vote for William Timmons. I don't, I don't think the guy's a conservative. Over to, here's a sad one, the Mark Sanford race. Mark Sanford was on the Glenn Beck show about a year ago, maybe a little bit more. And I was very encouraged to hear from him because he talked like a truly repentant man. His humility, his candidness in talking about his failures and what he, what he did, and all the different people he failed. He seemed to totally embrace... Yeah, I failed my wife and my kids, but listen, I, I failed constituents. I failed the state. I And then he specifically talked about how he failed as God. The, my impression of that interview was someone who has totally embraced repentance, has embraced forgiveness, and that... Oh, let me say it this way. You know uh, that feeling sometimes you get, you've get you had in your life? Maybe you don't have it right now. I know I don't. That feels good. But if someone said to you, hey, I heard something about you, your heart would start beating super fast and you'd get really worried because you knew there was something that you didn't want them to know. I feel like Mark Sanford's at that place after the, the, the freedom that comes from embracing, here's what I did, here was the wrong thing, and I have repented of it, and I have embraced forgiveness for it, and I'm moving on. And in verbalizing that so clearly, like he did on that interview, I don't think he's afraid of anybody. And think of that freedom, the freedom of, yeah, I'm going to say the things I believe because I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of the consequences of someone digging something up out of the closet for me. You know, he's not, they're not finding the dead bodies, uh, whatever, uh, whatever analogy you like. You know, no one's going to air my dirty laundry because I aired it and I've owned it and I said it was wrong. That's the kind of peace I think Mark Sanford has. Unfortunately, arguably the most conservative member of Congress. I, there's a couple other folks that might have an argument. But Mark Sanford, who ran this state as governor so well, and has all the core ideologies correct, someone who believes all the right things and has been, I think, restored. But all the evidence shows morally and ethically living a life that we would we would all admire after such a tr- such a terrible fall he he committed the sin that you can't you can't commit anymore he didn't say nice things about the president and that's where i know we we are a broken people so you vote all the like, for real go through this in your head so you vote all the right ways you are a con- i mean arguably the most conservative member of Congress, ideologically and in voting record, you're definitely in the top five of the most for limited government, the Constitution, the the ideas of home rule, defending the Tenth Amendment, the Second Amendment, pro-life, voting against budgets that this president actually signed that blew up the that blew up the debt even more than it is. This kind of vote, I mean rock ribbed, steel spined conservative. And then, but he didn't, he didn't say nice things about the president. And then when the president said the wrong things, he said that was the wrong thing to say. And he didn't, he didn't kiss the ring, so I don't like him. Boy, that's broken. 
and let's not pretend it's even it's any better than what the Democrats did. That happened to representatives when it came to Barack Obama. They could have been the most left-wing, most progressive voice. It happened really over war, because there were progressive voices who were super anti-war, and so was Barack Obama. And then Barack Obama goes and bombs Libya, goes and bombs Egypt. He's bombing everywhere. And then left-wing voices step up and say, hey, we said we didn't believe that. We weren't for that. And then they lose. They lose primaries. They get kicked out. Why? Because they said the bad thing about the leader. We don't like it. That's something to check your own heart on. Even if you, you you can't stand me sometimes because I don't like your guy. I don't like the president. Is that your judgment of human beings? Is that your judgment of politicians? Let me call that what that is. That's insane. That's a cult of personality that will rot your soul. That you're not thinking about principles anymore. So no ideas matter. This happened in that fourth congressional race that was so frustrating to me. When there's that ad out there that's, can you believe this guy said that Donald Trump's not a, a role model you should follow? Um, yeah. You find me the dad who says, son, I think you should behave like that guy behaves. That's a terrible father. What a horrid father would say that to his son. Follow that guy's example. And, but that's what we had an election on, partly in the 4th District, was, well, this, this guy's got all the voting record right. He believes all the right things, but did you know that he said an accurate but unflattering thing about the president? Oh, God, I mean, that's a prayer. God, help us. God, help us that we would look at the record and the character of a person and, and, and all that character and that record is so laudable. And the things, it's, it's so in line with the things that we believe. And they're going to get it right and do the right things. But man, they said an accurate, unflattering thing about this one guy who none of us really thought about except as a reality TV character up until a couple years ago, and we're all going to forget 10 years from now. And he said a bad thing about him that was accurate. And he's out. It's, I'm sad for Mark Sanford. I'm more sad for us. I'm more sad for what that means about us as a people and how we're evaluating things. And that's what I'd call you to, is how do you evaluate? How do you evaluate what is right and what is wrong? Because if you are using a personality, I'm going to say this really clear, you're wrong. You're Let's call that what it is. It's sinful. You're not called, especially Christian, you're not called to evaluate things by personality. You are called to evaluate things by biblical principle. And if you let a personality take the place of biblical principle, you are wrong. You need to repent of that. You need to turn your mind around from it. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to get everything I wanted. So let's do this Trump and Kim meeting. This is an, a good example of what I just talked about. So I saw both sides, left and right, or at least Trump and left, on the internet calling each other hypocritical. So here's what the left was saying about Trump people. If Barack Obama would have gone and met with this dictator who has put people in concentration camps and starved his people, if, he, if Barack Obama would have met with him, you on the Trump side would have all gone nuts and said Barack Obama is being too nice to dictators and he's, you know, he's being mean to our friends. You would have said that. But Trump goes and meets with this guy who's starving his people, puts people in concentration camps, has shut down all freedoms, and you're all okay with it. Well, you wouldn't have been okay with it with Obama. And then the Trump people say, uh, back to the Obamas, uh, well, if, if, if Obama was doing this, you would call it great peacemaking. So when Trump does it, it's, uh, it's giving in to a dictator, but if Obama would have done it, 
Uh, it would have been this historic idea for peace. And they're both just yelling at each other about the hypocrisy of the other. And here's what's true. Both of them are right. Let's not pretend that's not true. If Obama would have met with Kim Jong-un, CNN and MSNBC would have covered it as the greatest thing a president's ever done in opening up an entire country to diplomacy. They would have give him, given him a second peace prize. Let's be true about that. But no question, if Barack Obama was meeting with Kim Jong-un, that's what the right would have said. You're giving in to these dictators. And so again, because no one is evaluating anything by right and wrong. No one does that. They evaluate it on, is that my team? Is my team doing it? It's good. He's on my team. I like my team. Oh, is that on the other team? I don't like it. Whatever it is, I don't like it. Because he's on the other team. I don't like that team. And so again, another good call here. Both sides are right. Both sides are calling out the hypocrisy of the other one. And they're both right. Both sides are really hypocritical. They don't actually believe anything. They just have their stupid teams. I will admit I'm a little nervous because th th this is how the American brain thinks now. Everything is just prism of my team. And some folks have chosen the Trump team, so they're not thinking about right and wrong anymore. I am nervous that we're about to have like a, a Robert Jeffress or some part of the evangelical world that for whatever reason has signed up with this president start to defend the guy who probably right now has killed more Christians for being Christians than anyone else. There might be a Middle Eastern dictator who has killed more Christians, but Kim Jong-un, because the Kim dynasty has been all about them being gods, they have crushed Christianity. They have punished Christianity. They have put Christians in concentration camps and killed them. They have banned Bibles. This is a guy who has crushed Christians in every way, but because Trump is talking with him, I do not put it past Robert Jeffers to say, you know, the, you know, the Trump said some nice things about him, how it was incredible that this... I mean, this is stuff that Trump is saying about Kim Jong-un. It's incredible that he took over at 26. Can you, can you imagine all the things he's overcome? I wouldn't put it past Robert Jeffers or Jerry Falwell Jr. to come out and say, yeah, that Kim Jong-il guy, or, ooh, that's really impressive that he's been able to do what he can. All right, we got to go. We're all out of time. Uh, listen back next week for more. You get the show on demand at SoundCloud, at SoundCloud or anywhere else you get the show, iTunes, Apple Podcast. Uh, but thanks for listening. we got to get out of here. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.